Let's pray, and then we will get into Matthew chapter 8. Lord, we just thank you for the mercies that you show us, Lord, even in the midst of trials, how your mercy is still uh, seen there, Lord. Father, you have delivered our souls from death. You've delivered our eyes from tears. And you've kept our feet from falling. What possibly can we give to you, Lord, to say thank you? What possibly can we give to our God who owns everything? Lord, we know that the, uh, the sacrifices you desire are a, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, Lord, and a, and a life that is just uh, given in, in worship to you, Lord, to use as, as you please. And we thank you for all of the examples throughout history of men and women of faith that have truly given themselves a living sacrifice. Lord, may we be counted among those that have done the same to show our love to you. Father, open your word to us this morning. We need to hear from you. Lord, we need to know more about you. We need to know you, Lord. And I pray that you speak to us by your spirit from these pages this morning. And I pray that in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. A couple of cross-references also. As we get into Matthew chapter 9, you will hear me uh, cross-referencing Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5. Both of those are what you would call parallel passages, meaning they deal with the same story, but by two different authors, and each author gives some details. So, I'm going to be referring to some of those things, but when you get home, you may want to just read the story from, also from Mark 2 and from Luke 5. Let's read, starting in Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, Be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise and walk. Take up your bed and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. Verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him. And his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. While we were on vacation, 
we took a lot of pictures. Can you, can you remember the days before um, digital cameras when you actually had to carry canisters of film and then go get it developed somewhere? We took a th- over 1,000 pictures while we were away. And, and why is it that we take pictures? We take pictures because we want to remember something. We want to remember a situation. We want to remember uh, a sight or a scene. And in that picture, you have a, uh, you know, the whole picture is filled with background, but then the focus is on one thing or, or, or a couple of things there in the foreground. And that's what the photographer is trying to get those that will see the picture to focus in on. And I like as we read through this, and, and actually we've read it before and we'll read it again, Matthew uses the word a total of 73 times. Uh, that includes times when he's quoting Jesus saying it or the Pharisees. But it's the word behold. And we see it twice, one for each part of this section we're looking at today. Uh, we saw it last or a few weeks ago. Behold a leper. There were great multitudes. That's the background. Great multitudes. But what do you want us to focus on, Matthew? Behold a leper. Today, there'll be many in a house. Jesus is teaching. Behold, a paralytic. Then we'll see Jesus at the table. Behold, many sinners and tax collectors. See, behold is one of those words that says, man, would you take a look at that? Because we've heard Jesus' words, haven't we? We've, We've listened to him teach and we would agree. He's a phenomenal thinker. An amazing teacher. His grasp. Of, of the world and of life and of truth is unbelievable. But, you know, Confucius was a good teacher and Buddha was a good teacher, some would argue, and uh, Socrates and Plato, there have been good teachers. But what set Jesus apart is what he did, the way he lived, what he had the power and authority to do. And that's what Matthew is focusing us on. He says, look at, this is God in the flesh, if you've ever wondered, what is God like? How do we know what God is like? Matthew is giving us the answer. He is showing us what God is like in the flesh. And he is focusing in on people like a leper, like a paralytic, like sinners and tax collectors. He's not focusing on, in necessarily on the, the elders or the Pharisees or the Sadducees or those. They're part of the story. He is focusing in because he's trying to show us that this guy, Jesus, who's claiming to be God in a number of ways at a number of times, this, he's here to bind up what's been broken. He's here to set a, a, a guy captive to leprosy free. He's here to put back together what's been thrown apart, taken apart, undone. He's here to heal. And so we see him doing that. He gets into a boat, verse 1 tells us, and he crosses over, and he comes to his own city. A Capernaum is, is a, a beach town on the, on the Sea of Galilee. That's where his sort of ministry headquarters were. And then we read it. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, it's hard to get all the details from Matthew. Again, cross-references Mark tells us what's going on here is Jesus has crossed over and he's entered into somebody's house. And the houses were not like they are today. They were a little bit different. Some houses, if you're wealthy, maybe had a courtyard in it. But this house had been packed out to capacity. Not because Jesus had been healing a lot of people. But Jesus was there. People had heard about it. And you know what he was doing while he was there? He was preaching to them. He was teaching them. 
and the house was filled to capacity so that there wasn't even room at the door. I mean, you couldn't even get in anywhere to this house. And I like that. Evidently, Jesus had never learned the 80-20 rule. You know, if you're 80% full, then, then nobody else is going to come. I, evidently, Jesus didn't know that. Because at that point, people were willing to pack in to hear him. That's, that's happened before in history. Peter Marshall was a U.S. Senate chaplain back in the early 1900s, uh, early to mid-1900s. And uh, when he preached at the Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., People would come, and there was no more room inside the church. So they had, put, they had to install loudspeakers on the outside, and people would stand in the rain with umbrellas just so they could hear the Word of God preached. And, and now we live in a day where it says, well, you know, you've got to have this many extra chairs because people won't come. I say hogwash. I think if the Word of God is being preached, I hope there are still people left that it's so important to hear the Word of God. That you're willing to, to travel to hear it. They say a church alive is worth the drive. I say a church that preaches the word is worth the drive. Hearing the word of God. So it's packed out. There's standing room only. There's shoulder to shoulder. Some of the people there were Pharisees and scribes that had come from Galilee, Jerusalem, and Judea. They're coming from all over the place. And Matthew just simply says they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. This fella had been paralyzed. We don't know how. We don't know if it was from injury or illness. It's impossible for us to say. But we do know he was unable to bring himself. He couldn't walk. So he had to be brought, uh, Mark tells us, by four men. They carried him. We don't know how long they traveled, how far they traveled. Where would they come from? Were they just a mile away or were they 50 miles away? Imagine carrying that man on the bed for, you know, one guy on each corner of this. And it's not a, you know, a posturepedic or anything like that. It's just simply a mat that he would have rested on while he begged for his living because he couldn't earn a living. Uh, so they care. we don't know whose idea it was to go. Was it the friends that said, come on, man, we heard about this Jesus and he's healing people and we got to take you there. Or did he say to his friends, hey, guys, I need your help. I can't get there myself and I need you to take me to Jesus. I know if I can get to him, he can help me. We don't know. Or was it all of them together? So they arrive at this house where they know Jesus is. And they hit their first hurdle. What's that hurdle? It's packed. They can't get in. I can imagine them coming to the door. And, excuse me, excuse me. This is really important. Can you please move? Hey, come on, get out of here. We're, it's, we're trying to listen to what Jesus is saying now. Come on, quit bothering us. And they, they try another door or another window. And man, they just can't get in. So they hatch a plan that, again, Matthew doesn't tell us. They go up onto the rooftop, and they begin to dig their way through the tile or thatch, whatever. Uh, Luke, I think, just tells us through the tiling. So it could have been clay tiles on this roof, but they began to pull them apart. And what a plan. I mean, at the point where I couldn't get in, maybe that would have discouraged me. I said, well, you know what? You tell the parallel, you know what? We tried, man. Sorry. We, We did our best. This is as far as it goes. Guess we've got to go home. But they were not willing to accept that. They were going to find any way to get. So they go up on the roof and they begin to pull the tiles apart. Now Jesus is in the center of this house teaching. And, and all of a sudden, they begin to hear this rustling on the roof. Man, what is that? 
You know, it's like when a baby cries in here. Everybody's attention goes to that just like earlier today. A baby starts crying. Everybody's immediately, the attention is there. So the roof is being pulled apart. And everybody's attention is now on the roof, not on Jesus. And so the tiles, light begins to break through. And then and, uh, dirt's falling down into people's eyes. And, and then all of a sudden, this bed comes down, lowered by cords, or, and right into the presence of Jesus. What a picture. You see, it's not real clear here, but one application I want to make before we move on is that people that want to get to Jesus find a way despite obstacles. People that don't really want to get to Jesus only find obstacles. No matter what the obstacle is, they were going to get there. They were going to push through. They were going to get through. If anyone could have had an excuse at standing before Jesus in heaven, saying, I tried to get to you, Jesus, but the house was full. I couldn't. I'm a paralytic. I am dependent. That was their only day off. You know, that's the only day they could take me. I tried. Any, if anybody could have an excuse, it would be them. But I found as I read the scriptures and I talk to people, that the people that really want Jesus that really, really want Jesus, find a way to get there. They find a way to do what's needed. The woman with the, with the feminine bleeding for 12 years pressed through the crowd, if I can only touch his robe. Zacchaeus, that little man who was a chief tax collector, he climbed a tree just so he could see him. Blind Bartimaeus was crying out, and they tried to hush him, tried to, quiet now, quiet. And he just yelled all the more to get Jesus' attention. You see, I think one of the problems we suffer from here in, in American culture is that we like it easy and fast. And if it's not easy and fast, we'll move on. How many of you would have given up and gone home if you couldn't find a way in? If it wasn't easily accessible right away, I mean, how many of you are ready to throw your computer out if the Internet doesn't boot immediately? Or if there's a line at the drive-thru? Oh, go somewhere else. Because we like it fast and we like it easy. But sometimes, you know... It doesn't work that way. You need determination in spiritual things. Because everything in this world is against you because the whole world lies in the sway of the wicked one. Satan does not want you to read your Bible. He does not want you to pray. And everything will be set up against you bearing fruit. And so you must be determined in your spirit to be with Jesus, to spend that time to get into his presence what are the obstacles that keep you from getting into the presence of Christ? What are the excuses that you've made? What would be needed for you to overcome those? Are you determined to be in the presence of Christ as they were? So, so they lower this guy down. And the next, sec, next sentence says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. You see, I read the story, and what I saw was their determination. I don't know if that's what you saw when you read it or when you listened to me read it. That's what stood out to me, the determination. But Jesus sees it, and he sees what lies behind every believer's determination. From, from the disciples after Pentecost when they were persecuted, to the Apostle Paul who was beaten and shipwrecked and yet pressed on, to David Brainerd who had tuberculosis and traveled miles on horseback, coughing and spitting up blood in tremendous amounts of pain. What drives the determination in these people? What is it that keeps you, keeps me from burning out in our calling, in our walk? It's faith. It's faith. When Jesus saw him, he said he saw their faith. 
Now, is it the faith of the four guys? Is it the faith of the paralytic? It's not clear. It could be the faith of all of them. What is faith? It is conviction. It is full persuasion. And some of you are hearing the heavenly chimes right now. So you better make a decision for Christ. Now, he's coming. No. What is faith? I like to write a synonyms for faith if you want to circle it and write next to your Bible. Conviction or full persuasion. And the funny thing about faith, it's like love or like the wind. You can't really see it in and of itself. The only way faith becomes visible, the only way love becomes visible, the only way the wind becomes visible is by the effect it has. Faith becomes evident by what it makes people do, by what it causes people to do. Read Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, and see what faith made Abraham do, made Sarah do, made Samson do, made Gideon do, made all of these ancient uh, church fathers and, and, and believers do. Do people see your faith? Is your faith evident? What have you done? You know, what, ha- what has happened in your life that the only explanation that other people that look on could make is, man, that guy really believes what he says. That, that lady, boy, to do that, you must really believe what you say you believe. To, to make that kind of action, to do that kind of thing. If we looked at your checkbook, would we see financial decisions based on conviction or covetousness? If we looked at your calendar, would we see appointments and time used based on conviction or convenience? If we watched your actions, would we see you do things that are based on conviction? Conviction. We have a baptism coming up. Baptism is an act of faith. That's the only reason to get baptized, because you believe. Prayer. Giving. I mean, a number. Forgiveness. It blows people's mind when you decide to forgive. Because the world would take revenge. Oh, take revenge. Get, get back at them. When, when you do things like that, it shows your faith. And that is what Jesus sees if you don't if you don't have an answer if you can't say yeah you know here are the some things that i've done that there's no other explanation for other than i believe what jesus said i believe who he is then it's likely that and the bible would say that then you don't have faith at all after all james chapter 2 tells us that faith without works is what you guys know it you can say you have faith a lot of people you know we go to the we went to the downtown mall friday night with about 10 or 12 of the youth and we were witnessing there for about an hour and a half during fridays after five and a lot of people say well i'm a man of faith are you really i, I met a guy who w- was a man of faith he was selling um for 10 years in the downtown mall he's been, or 10 years maybe not just the downtown mall but around different places he's been selling t-shirts to uh in order to promote legalization of marijuana i'm a man of faith well, he's a man of faith in what? I'm not sure. I know one thing he believes in, that marijuana should be legal, and I've got to give him credit. At least he's acting according to his convictions. At least he's acting according to his convictions. And so should we. Shouldn't we, church? I mean, I think the world is just tired of seeing the church say one thing and do another. I think the world is, I think Fluvanna is tired of, of Seeing Christians claim this and then live that. And we know we're not perfect. We know, man, to live by faith is a hard thing. 
Because sometimes by sight, in some ways, is a lot easier. We can kind of grasp it. By faith, that's scary. That takes patience. That takes courage. It's not always the easy road. So just a challenge to ask yourself. Ask someone who knows you. Do you see my faith? Do you see me as a person of faith? Do you see me doing things that only a Christian, an insane person in love with Christ would do? I mean, love makes you do crazy things, doesn't it? Love makes you do silly things. When a person is in love with Christ and just has their full conviction and full persuasion that He is the Son of God, that He is God in the flesh and that He died for my I mean, that makes you do things differently. So the paralytic, and He says to him, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Now, wait a second. That's not what we expected, is it? Is that what you expected Jesus to say? Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. What did we expect? Honestly. We expected Jesus to say, be of good cheer, get up and walk. That's what I expected. I mean, that would be the, the uh, that's why they're there, isn't it? At least maybe that's what the four guys that brought them think that they're there for. But Jesus has this way of really knowing what's inside and really knowing what you need. And so, because he says to the, it's probably a young man because he calls him son. He says, son, be of good cheer. Or literally, uh, take courage, cheer up. My guess is that this guy had become discouraged. I don't know at what point he became discouraged. Maybe he'd lived discouragement for the last 20 years. Maybe he was discouraged because they couldn't get in. And man, he just lost heart. And so Jesus says, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Would that make you happy? Has it made you happy? Those of you that know the forgiveness of sin. My guess is that this young man came with a very heavy heart. We don't know why, again, he was paralyzed. Maybe the paralysis was related to some sin. Maybe not. But we do know this, that the weight of the guilt of sin can weigh on people that can walk and people that can't just the same. Can weigh on people that have leprosy and don't have leprosy just the same. How many of you know and have felt the weight of the guilt of your past sin? That life that you led, uh, even the life that you're leading now. I I printed this out. This is from Psalm 51. This is uh, David after he had committed adultery, committed murder, and hadn't told anybody, was holding it inside, dealing with the guilt. And my experience has been so many people that, that struggle with drug addiction, alcohol addiction, those things are covers to hide from the guilt and the weight of wrongdoing in our lives. And I know this is a little bit heavy, but man, once you know, the reason I spend the time here is because once you know the freedom from that, you see the joy. David wrote this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, the way I've, I've sinned or crossed the line. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, I mean, that sense of dirtiness, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. As much as you try to forget about it, as much as you try to, uh, to, to squash it or to not think about it or to, to entertain yourself away from thinking about it, most people on the inside, when they're questioned about it, still know their sin is ever before them. And they know their transgressions. And, and he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So, 
evidently Jesus knows that about this young man. He says, hey man, look, cheer up. Your sins are forgiven you. Man, that is great news. Christmas story. Good news of great joy. Not a healer is born this day. A savior. A savior. That's good news. For those of us, all of us, that know the way to sin, that's good news. So he tells them to cheer up. But not everybody's happy about this. Who's not happy? The Pharisees, the the scribes. At once, some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. Man, they can't believe the nerve of this teacher. Only God can forgive sins. And who is this guy to say your sins are forgiven? Who is he to speak for God? And they didn't say it out loud, did they? Where did they say it? In their heart. We do that, don't we? We see you know, how that person is dressed and we kind of formulate a thought or an opinion and we say it to ourselves. We don't tell anybody else what we think. But we have these thoughts in our minds that we have and we think about these things and and that's what they did. Nobody else knew what they, but Jesus knew. How did he know? Because he's able to know their thoughts. That's what verse 4 says. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? Let's just stop there and ask that question. What's easier to say? Let's just let's ask one question before that. First, which is easier to do? Forgive sins or heal a man? Which is easier to do? I mean, for a human being like me and you, they're both equally impossible. I can't do either one in and of my own strength or power. I'd love believe me, I would love to. Every time I go for a hospital visit, I would love to have in myself the power to heal. Or to forgive sin. Either one. Both impossible. But for Jesus, is one harder than the other? They're both equally easy. Doesn't matter to him which one. They're both equally easy. Now, the, let's answer the question. What do you think is the answer? Which is easier to say? By the way, he doesn't give them long. To, he answers the question right away. We don't ever hear their answer, which I would have loved to hear. You know, that's kind of how he, he always does them like that. Well, what's your answer? Which is easier to say? Forgiveness of sins would seem easier. Why? Because you don't have to prove it. There's no, you can't see sins being forgiven. There's, there's no outward demonstration that it's happened. So I, can, I could have stood there and said, hey man, sins are forgiven. Really? Cool, thanks. So when he says your sins are forgiven, uh, that's easy to say. But if he was to say arise and walk, you see, For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? You see, arise and walk is harder to say. Because either the guy gets up and walks, or he doesn't. If the guy gets up and walks, then Jesus proves who he is. And that becomes proof that whatever else he says is also true. So if the guy gets up and walks, guess what else? His sins have been forgiven, right? You see the connection? But if he doesn't walk, then his sins aren't forgiven, and Jesus is a phony and a fake. So, doesn't give him time to answer. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And now he turns to the paralytic and he says, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. I imagine he had to tell the guy to go home because the guy would have run around for weeks telling people about it. Go home, see, see your family. But that you may know. You know, so much that we deal with in the spiritual realm we don't have physical proof for. 
That's what it means to walk by faith. We believe that these things are true. But because Jesus heals, the healing is the secondary thing, folks. The physical healing. The primary concern, the primary ministry of Jesus Christ on the earth was not to heal people physically. It was to save them spiritually from their sins. That was his primary. And how do I know he really did it? How do I know that Jesus Christ could, when I get baptized on the 4th of July, how do I know when I say, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior and I, and I, and I ask him to forgive my sins? How do you know if you got it? Because we see him here, if nowhere else, and there are plenty of other places, but we see him here also able to physically heal, which proves that he also has forgiven and can forgive sins. You can trust it. And that's what he says, but that you may know. You can know your sins are forgiven. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to question. You don't have to know, "Ah, when I get to heaven, am I going to be accepted? Am I not going to be accepted? Am I going to get in? Am I not going to get in? Am I still going to have more work to do to work off my sins? No. You can know that your sins are forgiven. Now, when the multitudes saw it, so so the guy gets up. I mean, man, what an amazing scene. He he gets up off his bed and he goes out. He was lowered down through the roof. He walks out the door. I'm sure it parted like the Red Sea when this guy walked by. I mean, they're all just marveling at him. When the multitude saw it, they marveled. And who did they glorify? They glorified God who had given such power to men. So as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. Now Matthew is the author of this gospel. Matthew is a tax collector. And he is there probably like a customs official at the port of Capernaum. Capernaum was a seaside uh, city. There was trading going on. So Matthew had, uh, he's a Jewish man, Matthew Levi is his full name, and he collects taxes from people. Now you have to know this about tax collectors. They're Jews, this guy's a Jew, but he works for who? He works for the Romans. And the deal is this, Rome requires X amount of money. We're going to require $1,000 from you or shekels or whatever it is that they, they required. They set the amount of taxes. Matthew's salary comes from whatever he can collect over and above what he owes Rome. So Matthew pays Rome, let's say Matthew collects 2,000 shekels. He pays Rome 1,000, he pockets 1,000. If he's really slick, if he's really hard, he'll collect 3,000. Then he gets to live off 2,000, gives 1,000 to Rome. You see, the more shifty they were, the more tough they were, the more taxes they collected, the better they lived. I think Matthew lived pretty well. So he was hated. Tax collectors in general were hated by the Jews. Because they were defectors. They worked for the enemy. And they were crooks. They were thieves. They would overtax you. So this is, and he sees him sitting at the tax office. And he says to him, follow me. I mean, come on, Jesus, choose better. There's all, there's all these scribes and Pharisees. There's all, you've got a whole world to choose from. A tax collector, Jesus, come on. And then I, then I looked in the mirror. <laughs> I said, Jesus, come on, choose better. You could have done better than me. But he says to him, follow me. And what did Matthew do? He arose and followed him. Another gospel tells us he left all, rose up and followed him. That's hard to do. He left the money. He was following the money. Now he's following Jesus. He left it all to follow Christ. 
That's sometimes hard. I want to hold I want to follow Christ, but I want to hold on to this too. I want to follow Christ, but I got this big deal brewing right now. And oh, you know, I, it involves a little, you know, I got to lie a little bit, but you know, it's big money and, and I can use that to, I can give to the church's building fund with that, you know. You leave all, all that stuff behind. When you get baptized, the old man dies. The new man, and he lives for completely different things. He left all, gave that life up, and he's living a new life as a follower, as a disciple of Christ. So look what he does. Verse 10 says, Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, this is in Matthew's house, that, there's the word again, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. So evidently, Matthew decides to throw a going-away party for all his co-workers. He's leaving, he's turned over his business to somebody else. He's getting out of it, and he decides, you know, before I go following this, this teacher uh, across Israel, I'm going to have a big party for all my uh, co-workers. And I'm going to invite them to come, and, and Jesus is the guest of honor. And so he invites them in, and a whole bunch of them come, and, and they sit down with Jesus and with his disciples. So what a group here. And when the Pharisees, there's the Pharisees again. They're always spying in, aren't they? they? They always watching to see what Jesus is doing. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? What a question to reveal the hearts of these. These guys were just so hard. They, Pharisee means separated one. And they had separated themselves through their rituals and through their uh, routines and through their ceremonies. They had become so separate from everybody else that they didn't even want to hang around other people. Those people were dirty. We are clean. And we don't want those dirty people to make us dirty. So we don't hang out with them. We have our rituals. We wash our hands a certain way. We only eat certain kind of food. Therefore, we are incompatible with them and they are incompatible with us. The problem was... God's intention was for the Jews to be a light to the world. And they weren't doing it because they had separated themselves from. You know, that's a good, uh, that's a good thing to, to think about, I think, for us. There's, I think back to my high school days, and I think back to the high school cafeteria and how what, you see social segregation in the high school cafeteria. Don't, there's this table, and there's only these kind of people at this table, and this table doesn't associate with that table because that table is the jocks, and, and I'm part of the brains, you know. I'm, I'm in the, doing well in school, and, and I'm one of these guys. That, hey, we study a lot, and that's our group, and that group over there, they're the jocks, and that group over there, you know, they're the, the skateboarders. And you've got all these segregations, and that's kind of what the Pharisees were like. Their whole life was segregated that way. But... Notice this, that Jesus did not spend all of his time only with his followers. And we run a risk of that in the Christian church today, don't we? We kind of get saved and then we have Christian kickboxing and Christian daycare and Christian aerobics and Christian dinners and Christian this and Christian that. We have our Christian social groups and everything's Christian. You know, when I was working uh, before I was a pastor, now I don't work anymore, only Sundays, you guys know that. I didn't mean to say it that way, but uh, when I was working as a horseshoer, 
uh, I got to spend a lot of time with unsaved people, and that was great. And one of the biggest bummers about becoming a pastor was I'm around Christians all the time. I mean, Tom in the office, he's saved, and Kay is saved, and all you guys that come visit, you're all saved, and that's no fun. So I got to go to the downtown mall, and I got to, uh, we do benevolence. We got to help people come in, the unsaved people, because I got to eat and, and hang out with unsaved people, because they're the people that need Christ. You guys already got them. You just need to grow. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Just that's part of the Christian life. But boy, to see, and I noticed another thing. I, I don't think they felt unwelcome in Jesus' presence. I don't think they were all sitting at one end with Matthew, and there's Jesus at the other end of the table, you know. He's sitting by himself eating, and there's Matthew and the sinners and the tax collectors all down there. I, mean, I don't think he wants us near him. I don't, th- I don't get the picture like that. I get a sense that they felt welcome to come and dine with Jesus. Do sinners feel welcome to come in and, and, and be among us? I think that over time, the word of God will make them feel uncomfortable unless they repent. But I think that it ought not to be from our attitude of self-righteousness toward them that they would feel unwelcome in our presence. Um, Charles Spurgeon said, if I were a lamp and had my choice of where I would be hung, I should prefer to be hung up in the darkest place in London where I could have where I could be of most service. Are there places in your life? I mean. This is Matthew's co-workers. We used to be, this church used to be called Cowboy Chapel when it first started because so many of the people that were involved with this church early on were people that we had dealings with among, around horses. They were people I worked with, worked for, and, and some of you still here today. We got involved uh, through, I was shoeing your horses, or we were shoeing together or something like that, and, and we began to talk about the Lord together in that context. And here's, you know, some of you work in places with a lot of unsaved people. And you keep praying, God, take me out of here. I don't want to be around these people anymore. And here we have Matthew having his first fruits among his co-workers. It's just pretty cool to see. Sinners and... So again, a good question. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, Jesus is going to answer it. What's the answer? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Simple answer, right? Sick people seek out a doctor. You don't go to the mechanic. You don't go to the hairdresser. Honey, I'm not feeling well. I think I have a fever. I'm going to go get my hair done. All right, you might do that. but You go to the one who specializes in physical illness. That's the doctor. You don't go when, you don't show up at your doctor's office and he says, yeah, come on in, come on. What can I do for you? Nothing. I just came to visit. Well, are, are you sick? No, I just felt like coming to say hi. Get, I got sick people to treat. Get out of my way. Come on, go, go, go back home. Go get your hair done or something. Those that are sick need a doctor. Those that are well do not. What if you had a doctor who turned away sick people? What if you really were sick and you went to the doctor and you showed up and you said, Doctor, I need something. I need some help. I got a fever. I'm throwing up. And he said, Oh, man, I don't want to get that. Get away from me. Go, go somewhere else. I can't help you. I don't want to get sick. I said, well, I thought you were a doctor. Yeah, but I don't deal with sick people. Well, then how can you call yourself a doctor? Right? But see, that's what the Pharisees had become. The Pharisees were, were like that doctor that doesn't want to deal with sick people anymore. Oh, you guys are sick. We don't want to deal with you. But Jesus recognized and said, hey, look, these people are spiritually sick. And they have come to me. And I'm not going to turn them away. Every individual 
has inherited a sickness called sin. You, you got it from Adam. Don't feel bad. We all got it. It's in our genes. We sin because we're sinners. That's what we're inherited from. When Adam sinned in the garden, the whole world died. Not that just the world at that time, but all, every person to be born after that. All of us died because of Adam. And all of us are made alive, those that believe in Christ. The great physician, binding up what's been broken, healing the brokenhearted. He says, hey, it's not these people, I'm eating with them because they recognize their need for me. The other problem with the Pharisees is they didn't recognize their need for him. They said, no, we're not sick, we're doing okay. You know, as they're limping around spiritually and We've developed this thing, this attitude that many people have regarding church that somehow before you come to to Dr. Jesus, before you come to the great physician, Jesus Christ, that somehow you've got to get healthy first and then come. And we have that, well, we saw this person in church and they didn't have their hair cut and they weren't wearing a suit and they didn't have on the right shoes and they didn't didn't have their Bible. Can you believe that? We expect people somehow to be healthy first and then come to church. Please invite your sick friends to come to church. That's how I came. Right? I was sick and someone invited me. And I met the great physician who healed me from all my sins and just disgusting patterns of life and thoughts. And I can't believe the way, the things I thought and the way I dealt with life and people. I was sick. Don't look at me like that. You're sick too. Or at least you were. I've been, this has all been bottled up for three weeks. Give me a break. <laughs> I just pray, you know, uh, he says, go and learn what this means. What, what an offense to these, these uh, teachers who were supposed to know. Go and learn. I imagine the looks on their faces. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous or those that are self-righteous. That's the, the healthy, but sinners, the sick, to a changed life. See, he wasn't eating with these tax collectors because he enjoyed their lifestyle and because he was one of them. You know, be careful with this idea of hanging out with the unsaved and, you know, bad company corrupts good morals. We know that. But you can hang out with people and you can work out a way and you can talk to them about a new life in Christ, about repentance, about a changed life. But, see, they knew their Bibles, they knew their Scriptures, but they didn't know Jesus. If they had, they would have understood that what he, did, he didn't desire sacrifices. God isn't hungry. He doesn't need sheep and goats and bulls. He does, that's not what he's about. What he desires is mercy. Mercy. Kindness to the undeserving. And, and the minute this fellowship becomes closed, the minute we in our hearts and our minds become unaccepting to those that come in here that are still sick and they've come here to see the doctor and we say well sorry there's no doctor here we're all already healthy and we don't want what you got but we all had what they got and weren't you excited that the great physician healed you i mean weren't you thankful that you ain't what you used to be and wouldn't we want that for someone else so you're going to have to be a little patient with tax collectors and sinners that come in We're going to have to be a little tolerable. And you're going to have to be tolerable of me, and I'm going to have to be tolerable of you, and we're going to have to be tolerable of those because I pray that this is a place where we can invite, where you can invite and say, man, 
Come and see the man. Come and meet the man, Jesus Christ, in the pages of his word that changed my life forever. Amen? Are we, are we ready to accept in and to receive in until the word of God either changes them or drives them back out? People that we don't necessarily agree with their ways or agree with their lives. They don't look like us. They don't think like Amen. I hope that we can um, be like Jesus. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for every person that has come in here today. Lord, we don't even know. Maybe there are some folks that have come today that uh, deep inside know that they are sick. If when they get down to it, Lord, understanding the thoughts in their, of their own hearts and that something is wrong recognizing the trail of destruction in their own lives. Lord, and I pray that they would hear the words that Jesus has come not for the ones that think they've got their acts together, but for the ones that know they don't. And has come to call them to a new life, to a fresh start. So, Father, I pray that as as we close in prayer, That those that are are hearing this for the first time. That thought the church was just a stuffy place where people that wore suits all talked about uh, a God they didn't really know. But that this is real. I pray that there would be a response in their hearts by your spirit, Lord. And a determination to know you, to be in your presence. So as we just sit, and Phil's going to close us in a song in a minute, and I just want to take two minutes to allow you to ponder these things in your heart, asking yourself if there's any way that your faith is evident, asking yourself if you lack determination to be with Christ, or if there are obstacles that you just haven't taken the time to get over or around or through. Or if you're sick, broken-hearted, captive to some addiction or thought process, and you just want to be healed by the great physician. Any of those cases, just put your hand up. For those of us that haven't... uh, that have already received uh, what Christ has for us and we are already enjoying a life of forgiveness, then as we stand, uh, let's go ahead and stand now and we sing a final song. Let's just remember those words to the paralytic. Folks of Calvary Chapel, be of good cheer. Why? Our sins are forgiven and we can know it, right?